0: I'm confident that whatever it is, it it physically exists and that it's intelligently controlled and that it is a significantly higher intelligence than us.
1: The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. On this episode, I'm going to revisit an area that I visited over a year, almost a year ago. The Pentagon has recently declassified footage of UFO observations and provided a summary report, including an expert assessment of the data. Is the truth out there? Are we being visited by little green men from another planet? It's now time for the rational view to have another look. I'm going to apply the tools of science as much as I can uh, while I interview someone who's been looking at this for much longer than I have and we'll get their assessment. Is there any hard data that UFOs are alien technology visiting us from another planet? Stay tuned to find out as always. If you enjoy this, please hit like on your podcast app. uh, Send me a review, share it with your friends. And if you'd like to join the discussion, come look us up on Facebook at The Rational View. Robert Powell has a BS in chemistry. He has 28 years experience in engineering management in the semiconductor industry. He's a founding board member of the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies or SCU. He was the director of research at the mutual UFO network MUFON from 2007 to 2017 and created MUFON Science Review Board in 2012. Robert is co-author of a book published in July 2012 entitled UFOs in Government, A Historical Inquiry and is an author of a book designed for children published in November 2020 entitled The Truth About UFOs, A Scientific Perspective. Robert, thank you for joining me on The Rational View. Well, thanks, Al. Glad to be on it. I try to be as rational as possible. I, I appreciate that. Could you tell me and and my listeners a little bit about your background and how you got interested in in researching UFOs? Sure. Um,
0: When I was um, a teenager, I had read uh, Dr. J. Allen Hynek's book, uh, The UFO Experience. And um, I I found that very interesting. It's written from a scientific type perspective. Uh, But I did not have time to pursue it because, you know, you're uh, getting ready to go to college, you're um, get your degree, then you get a job, then you get married, have your kids. And so UFOs was not on my radar. Um, however, I was fortunate, and I got to retire early. And uh, so I thought, okay, what are the different things I've always wanted to do? And so one of them was uh, look at whether or not there was any reality to UFO phenomenon. So in early, late no early 2007... Um, I joined MUFON and shortly thereafter became their director of
1: research. So, so what's MUFON? Can you tell us a little bit about what that organization is? MUFON
0: is, stands for the Mutual UFO Network and it's probably the largest organization in the United States of uh, people who, you know, look at the UFO phenomenon.
1: So is this open to anyone? Is it like a, a public organization?
0: Right, it's a public organization. It's open to anyone. I started off there, um, first investigating the phenomenon. And in the process, um, I decided I wanted to do some research on the history of it. And I was fortunate in meeting a a professor out of Western Michigan University by the name of Dr. Michael Swartz. And you might say um, I was his apprentice. Um, He gave me a pretty good scientific field for the subject and so that that's what really led to the book that we publish uh, ufos and government a historical inquiry
1: interesting and you've also been involved with scu
0: yes um i left mufon 10 years after join joining it uh mostly because i just <clears throat> felt like i'd been beating my head against the wall okay. trying to get the scientific perspective put into the subject. And so I said, okay, uh, myself and two other individuals, we founded the SCU in September of 2017. And uh, currently we have uh, 114 contributing members. Uh, 28% of them have PhDs. Uh, We have former NASA scientists in the group, uh, university professors, uh, you know, a good group of individuals who are interested in the subject and they have different perspectives on, on the subject.
1: Okay. That's that's very interesting. So the reason I, I reached out to you and wanted to do this podcast was the recent uh, release of a bunch of – or declassification of, of a lot of UFO reports from the U.S. government and the Pentagon – They just released an assessment of this data, a public unclassified assessment of the UFO reports over something like 20 years. I guess I read the report and it notes that something like 80 out of 144 reports between 2004 and 2021 include observations of UFOs with multiple sensors. So these are things that are not just, you know, somebody saw it. This has got a little bit of strength behind it as, you know, much more difficult to explain away as, as something that uh, it might have been just a trick of the light. What what's your impression of this of this information that's been released? Is it was this groundbreaking stuff? Was this did did you learn a lot, or was it more of the same?
0: Yeah, I guess you might say it's more of the same. Uh, the, the The big positive on it, Al, was that this is really the first time the government has come out and said there's this number of objects that they can't explain. I mean, I I find it pretty puzzling that the U.S. government in two years cannot identify more than one out of 144 objects as a balloon. So there's one of two things. Either one, they haven't been doing much work, or two, uh, they've got 143 unexplainable objects, so I'm not sure which of the, you know, Two is the case. Now, is that that's the good part about it. the bad part is there was there was no information provided. There was no data. There's no not even a summary of what are these eighty cases. You know, how many of them do they throw into the balloon bucket? How many do they throw into you know the other bucket? There, there's nothing like that.
1: So, what what did they consist of these reports? How, how much information or real data do you have? It's just like a a date and time, or nothing.
0: Nothing. I mean, the government provided nothing on that. So, you
1: know, so you have to go look for it yourself. Is it available with with on request or?
0: No, no. There, it's not available uh-huh. on request. There's no way to obtain it. Um, the other thing you might notice if you just kind of read through it a couple of times is those 144 reports mostly occurred within the last two years, hmm. and they're mostly all Navy reports. So that really tells you that we're really talking about hundreds of reports, not 144, right? Because you have the Air Force, the Army, NORAD, CIA, all these other organizations. None of their reports are in there.
1: Wow. Okay. So and just to go a little bit deeper into what they said about it, they said the observations were clustered around U.S. training and testing grounds. There was a clustering, which probably is not surprising since these are coming from us military operations Uh, and they said 18 of the incidents showed unusual movement patterns or flight characteristics some of them could be attributable to classified us programs but they were unable to confirm Uh, now i don't know if they were unable to confirm because uh, they just couldn't tell or because they were not allowed to tell what, what's your take on the on the possibility that a lot of these are some sort of classified uh, us stuff
0: to be honest Al without having more information on those specific cases I can't really draw any conclusion The only one I can draw a conclusion on is the one we investigated which was the 2004 incident with the USS Nimitz uh, That one in our my view is that it's not explainable by any advanced technology that we're going to develop in the next 20 to 30 years right because you can normally predict 20 30 years out what we're going to come up with next mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and this is more of a, a logarithmic jump in technology
1: now this is your paper right you, a forensic analysis of navy carriers strike group 11's encounter with an anomalous aerial vehicle correct can you give us a little description of what that? Encounter entailed, and what the what the real data is. What what's what are we hang our hang our hat on in this?
0: So, right. So okay. So basically, I'll try to make this as short as possible. Uh, the USS Nimitz is southwest of San Diego, about 80 miles, and they're doing a, a standard uh, testing and and getting ready to do a military air exercise with the Marine Air Group out of San Diego that will be attacking. The USS Nimitz uh, F-18 Super Hornets, and they're going to defend the carrier strike group. So this carrier strike group consists of a uh, Ticonderoga class missile cruiser, two destroyers, a nuclear submarine, and various supply ships, and the uh, about seventy-five aircraft aboard the USS Nimitz, including E-2 Hawkeyes, which are basically uh, radar flying aircraft with a big big dome on the top of it. Mm-hmm. So they're getting ready uh, to do this uh, exercise. But several days before, a guy by the name of Kevin Day, who's the uh, head of radar on the USS Princeton, and USS Princeton is responsible for the protection of the entire carrier strike group in terms of radar um, information. Okay. So they're seeing these objects at about 80,000 feet moving south uh, at only 100 knots. You know, they they recalibrate their radar systems. Uh, They're seeing it on multiple radar systems. And they verify, yes, it's real, but there's no threat. So Hmm. they just go on... um, that, you know, days go by and these things pop up every once in a while. Well, then on the on the date of the exercise, which was November 14th, 2004, they're getting ready to do the exercise when these objects that were at 80,000 feet popped down to around 28,000 feet. And at 28,000 feet, they're now in the same operating altitude as the F 18s. So now they're a concern. So Mm-hmm. Senior Chief Kevin Day goes to the captain of the USS Prince and he says, "I have an air safety concern because of the exercise and these objects are in our airspace and he says there's nine to ten of them. So the captain authorizes him to redirect uh, some of the f-18s that are already in the air uh, to intercept the nearest object, which is about 50 sixty miles to their west and this is the one which Commander Fravor Uh, some of your audience may be familiar with. Um, He's the commander of one of the squadrons. He, and there's two pilots in each of these F-18 Super Hornets. He and his backseat guy, and then a second plane commander's, Lieutenant Commander Slate. uh, And he, and there's a woman who's actually piloting that aircraft. um, Alex Dietrich. So they head towards the coordinates that the USS Princeton's radar system provides. So USS Princeton said, we got a target here, head that way. So they're headed that way at 20,000 feet. They get to their point, and the Princeton says, okay, radar can no longer discern you and the object, which means that the object's close to them. Okay. So now they just visually, they're looking around. They find it. Uh, Fraber sees this tic-tac shaped object bouncing around near the water. Under the water? No, no, above the water. Above the water. You're right, and he describes it like a ping pong ball. It's just, it's instantaneous moving and it's very random. So he decides he's going to go engage it. So he's at 20,000, Slate and Alex Dietrich, they stay at 20,000 to observe. So Fravor heads down and as he heads down towards the object, The object pops up, turns its nose towards him, and begins to move towards him. But, like, on a pirouetting circle, as he's going down, it's coming up. And at one point in time, Fravor says, okay, I'm just going to cut across diagonally to intercept this thing. He does so, and he gets within about a half mile to a mile of the object. Which, when you're in a jet aircraft, that's pretty close. Okay. Um, And then suddenly, the object just takes off, disappears, and is gone in one to two seconds. And all four pilots indicated that's what they saw from two different angles, right? You've got Fraber down here with the sky in his background as he's trying to intercept, and you've got Slate up here with the ocean in the background, and they both see this happen. Hmm. All right, so that that's basically um, what happens. Uh, they go back to the Nimitz to land. And as they're heading back to the Nimitz, uh, Princeton comes back on their radio and says, you won't believe what's happened, but that object is back at your cap point, which was the point that the jets were before they left the Nimitz to engage this object. Um, they, go, they proceed to land on the Nimitz, um, and then, two other F-16s, F-18s take off, and one of those captures a video of an object which is supposedly one of these objects. Whether it's the same one, there's no way to know. And that's pretty much the the essence of the story. Now, what we focused on were three, ex- three times during that four-hour period of time when there appeared to be extreme acceleration. Mm-hmm. Now, unfortunately, we don't have the radar data, right? If we had the radar data on the object, we would know absolutely what the acceleration was. That would be a helpful thing, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I'm confident the Navy has that data, right? Because you don't keep this video, which is not very clear, for 17 years, and then you throw away the radar data. So I'm I'm sure they've got it. But So what we did is we took the three instances that we could and measured acceleration. The first instance was what two different individuals, uh, one by the name of Gary Vorseth, who was, he is not a radar guy. He's actually what they call the computer fire control operator. He and then uh, Kevin Day, who was the head of the radar. I interviewed each of those guys And independently, they told me, in the case of Kevin Day, that the object moved uh, roughly from 80,000 to 28,000 in .78 seconds. And in the case of Gary Vorseth, when I asked him how long did it take on the radar screen for it to go from 80,000 to 28,000, he asked me, how long did it take you to generate that question? And he said that's how long it took for that object to move from 80,000 to 28,000.
1: So in, in less than a second, it went 60,000 feet. Right. Yeah, that seems non-physical almost.
0: Right, it does. The, the second example, and I think this is the strongest, was the statements from um, the commander and the lieutenant commander who were in the jets. Uh, Fravor makes a, a distinct statement that the object disappears from his view in one to two seconds. And when I say distinct, because he says, if you've ever been to an air show and a jet goes by at Mach 1, low over you, it takes it 10 to 13 seconds to disappear from sight. He said this object disappeared in one to two seconds. So that gives credence to believing that he knows that it was one to two seconds, not seven, eight, nine, ten seconds. In the case of Commander Slate, who I interviewed, um, he indicated, because remember, he's up at 20,000. He said when the object took off, he just described it as if it was shot out of a gun. So again, an indication of an object disappearing from sight in one to two seconds. Um, So at that point, right, it's just trigonometry to calculate the acceleration, right, because we know uh, what the human eye can see, the smallest object, which is about 0.01 uh, degrees of sky. And from that, and it's, you know, I won't go through all that, but but you can calculate that. The third item was the video itself, which I think is the weakest of the three. But the video itself, if you assume that it's lost lock, the acceleration, this was the lowest of all the accelerations. I think it was around um, a minimum of 40 Gs
1: um, based on the video. Okay. And, this, and the size of this object was, was supposed to be how big, roughly? Did, did they know? They estimated the size of the object to
0: be the same as their F-18. But what we did in our report is we, we used error bars on everything. So we assumed anything from 25 feet to 60 feet. So we just looked at you know what would the acceleration numbers and all the other calculations be if we buried that. Right. And then the other thing we buried, like in the case of the pilot's testimony, we buried that to say, well, what if it wasn't one or two seconds? What if it was six seconds? So we buried that, calculated accelerations.
1: Okay. Um and,
0: you know same thing throughout everything we
1: did. So this seems as I say, seems very strange. Yeah. What was your conclusion on terms of the the object's capabilities? Is it beyond anything that You could envision that uh, could be uh, with current technology, could be achieved with current technology?
0: Yes, because not only do you have accelerations that went into hundreds of g forces, you've got an object that it can accelerate to hundreds of g forces and then come to a standstill, which of course is negative g forces. But the the problem is, you know, we, we have objects that can accelerate nowhere near that, but. But, you know, we can get up to high speeds, but we can't stop and then reinitiate uh, speed again.
1: Now, what about, like, um, additional evidence? Like, was there a sonic boom? I mean, you expect if something is exceeding the, the sound barrier, you, you would have a sonic boom.
0: So, exactly. And we saw none of that, right? There was, there was really, if you look at it, out, what we saw was no indication. I'll, I'll just say this, that the object really physically there Right? There's no sonic boom. It should have been a fireball because the speeds we calculated are tens of miles an hour. It should have been a fireball and the atmosphere just exploding around it. None of that. Yeah. So, one thing we took into account, we said, okay, what if maybe it was a uh, hologram? Right? Maybe someone's figured out how to project a hologram out in the middle of the ocean and make it look like it's a. you know this tic tac looking object, right? But okay, sure. The problems that we found with the holograms is we didn't think it was feasible. We could not come up with a feasible explanation for how you could do that out in the middle of the ocean because because there's a military exercise going on. The lasers used to generate the hologram most likely should be up in a, on a satellite, and so that means you're. Your laser's going through no atmosphere to thin atmosphere to thick atmosphere, no humidity to high humidity, and yet you're still able to uh, control this imagery. Uh, So we didn't think that was feasible.
1: What about – okay, so going along the hologram idea. Yeah. You're obviously – you know, if I were to make a hologram generator to distract jet fighters, I would make it relatively small. Right. And you did have radar hits, right? There was something there. Correct. On radar. <clears throat> did the radar mo- sig- signature move off at speed as well, or did it remain remain there after the interaction? Uh, or did, uh, do we know?
0: Yeah, I'm not sure. Could you rephrase your question? I'm not sure what you're...
1: The, well, the, the Princeton was tracking these radar signatures um, of objects... Did they see their radar uh, streaks moving off at, at speed? Or, you know, if there was a, a projector that was stationary and an image that was moving at high speed, is that consistent with the evidence?
0: Uh, okay, I see what you're saying. Um, okay, there's two instances. One is when the object is at high altitude. Um, and then it's moving at slow speed. And, and there they're, they're tracking it, you know, normal type movement. Now when the object is moving at high speed, um my understanding from uh Gary Borsett when I talked to him as to how it moved, he indicated that it it wasn't uh it wasn't a continuous movement, that there were jumps in the movement, right? Hmm. On the radar. On the radar, yeah which he thought was very unusual. He'd never seen that before. Now, what we don't know about, that radar system is not a typical uh, rotating dish. It's using a microprocessor to send out the the radar signals. So, and I'm sure that's classified, right? I don't know if it's sending out a, a beam every one millisecond or one microsecond. But, you know, if it is skipping, as he indicated, then at whatever rate that radar beam is being sent out, this object would have to be moving faster Hmm. than that uh, beam is uh, going out in order to skip.
1: Now, the other thing that people would consider in this case is, you know, are these people trustworthy? Is there a reason that they would lie about this? You know, obviously anything like this, you, you you know, when you're when you're talking about evidence of things that are basically potentially extraterrestrial or beyond human capabilities, as we understand them. Right. Um, require a lot of evidence. And and a lot of cases we've gone back and people have found hoaxes and people have discovered, you know, reasons to lie or, or, or things like that. I, I have no idea about this, but this is seems like a lot of highly placed military people.
0: Right. I mean, what you mentioned, though, is always something to consider, right? And I always consider that when I look at any type of UAP or UFO case. In this particular case, there's over 25 witnesses. And the, the way I actually originally found the senior chief and also Gary Vorsett was I went to actually the USS Princeton's Facebook site. And I got admitted to the site because I told them I was working on history, which is true. And so I was able to scan the entire uh, web Facebook site, and that's where I found all these various sailors, some of them who have never come forth, they've not been willing to, um, talking about this object. But I think the strongest of the witness testimony comes from the pilots. In the case of uh, Fravor, um, both he and Slate are uh, Annapolis uh, Navy graduates from the Naval Academy. In the case of Fravor, his degree was in oceanography. And in the case of uh, Slate, his was in, um, I believe it was was military studies. Uh, And then they both later got master's degree. So they're both sharp guys. Slate was very matter-of-fact when I talked to him. Um, So I I don't have any concern about the witnesses themselves. I I do realize that, you know, testimony is going to change over time, right, because our memories change over
1: time. Sure, recollections aren't solid. This is is why you always love to have as much physical data as possible when you're looking at these. And the fact that you can't access the radar is – troubling, right? If you know, The more lines of evidence that you can get, the better you can narrow down the possible explanations for this.
0: Absolutely. You know, in my mind, if the Navy would provide the radar data, and I understand there's national security issues here, so you would have to have a group of scientists be given access and they would have to sign non-disclosure agreements, right? Because you don't want our adversaries to know how fast that microprocessor is sending out a beam. But in terms of knowing the speed and the acceleration of the object, to me, there's no national security issues there. I mean, a radar system is a radar system.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: What we have been arguing for and would like is really for the military to provide that data to scientists so that we we can actually have the data analyzed. it, it, it's straightforward, you know. What, what's the speed? What were the acceleration numbers? And if you see crazy speeds, crazy acceleration numbers, now there's only two possibilities: one, either you come up with a reason why your equipment was grossly malfunctioning that day, uh, and it's got to be a good, reasonable explanation; or two, you're dealing with an intelligence, you know, that's an unknown intelligence that's not from you know any of the nation states on this planet
1: so assuming that this is an actual observation of something anomalous and the u.s navy has the data of the radar presumably they'd be interested in analyzing this and coming up with some sort of an explanation do they have they expressed interest in this stuff or you know do they have any reason to not investigate this and find out what this thing is that's looking at their exercise? Obviously, they would be interested in whatever it is that's if it's monitoring their their exercises, they would consider maybe uh, another country is 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 sending something over here to look at us or, um, you know, if it's this weird technology, where's the technology coming from? Is it coming from Russia? Is it coming from China? Is it coming from space? Is it uh, just some sort of atmospheric phenomenon that we can't, that we don't understand. Is it ice crystals? You know. Uh,
0: no, I agree with you. They, you would think that that's what they would want. I, I don't have any insight to what the Navy is doing behind the scenes or how they're viewing it. I would hope, I would hope they have some scientists that are looking at that data. My gut feel is that they have to know that they actually know the answer. I, I don't believe that uh, with 144 cases that we can't figure out if these are Chinese or Russian. And we have the most sophisticated ra- radar and satellite systems in the world. We would know their origin and destination.
1: And, you know, if if this is something that's, that's beyond terrestrial technology, which I'm skeptical that that exists and that there's a good data on it, because I think that something that big would be very difficult to keep a secret. Now that's my opinion. Yeah. (laughs) But if, if they had hard data on technology beyond well beyond human, that that would get out. Now, maybe someone could argue that it, that this is it getting out. (laughs) I'll withhold judgment on that. (laughs) In, In my experience in, in UFOs, like astronomers, never report ufos because they know what they're looking at in the sky right you 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 see typically people that report ufos just don't understand the, the equipment that they're using don't understand cameras don't understand optical phenomenon and atmospheric phenomenon i i was looking around doing some research for this interview and i i saw this these pictures of ships sea ships that are floating above the water and there's an optical illusion that can happen when there's a a thermal inversion uh, makes these ships look like they're floating and obviously they could appear to move very quickly if the atmospheric inversion were to change suddenly so you know there's a lot that we don't understand about optics and 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 you know atmospheric phenomenon that that could potentially describe some of these do you do you think that many of these observations could be just misunderstandings of sensor stuff or what's your, what's your opinion, how you've been researching this for some time?
0: Yeah, I've been researching it, I guess, since 2007. Um, no, I mean, in the case of the Nimitz case, I, I'm, I'm confident that the data is, is, you know, what we concluded I'm 99% confident. That's real. Most cases that you hear about and, and, I will lump many of the recent Navy cases you may have seen, like the little triangular green objects, et cetera, Um, there's so little data there that you can't conclude anything about that. Uh, There's very few times that we have had cases where there's sufficient data you can draw some type of conclusion. I could probably count on both hands the number of cases where that happened. I've, you know, in the case of astronomers, um, there have been actually a number of astronomers who have seen UFOs. But in, in their day-to-day work, they're not going to see UFOs because they're looking, of course, in the modern astronomer, he's not even looking through the telescope. He's looking at plates, of very small. You sure, know,
1: yeah. Amateur astronomers.
0: <laughs> the, the odds of seeing something as you look through a telescope are minuscule. Uh, they they'd need to see it basically with the naked eye. Sure. Uh, to have a chance to see something
1: so based on your research there's a handful of observations that are very difficult to explain way that seem to be beyond our capabilities and seem to hold together is there a discernible pattern to these is there like you know if it was the same ship every time right. um, doing the same sort of things then wow maybe with it maybe there's a story here
0: yeah and, and that's the word part Al, there, there's not an easily discernible pattern. Now, if if you look at what the navy, the uh, not the navy, but the director of national intelligence just released uh, that report, they actually state in there that there is a, a a particular shape and characteristic that is has repeated several times. But they never tell you the shape or tell you the characteristics it had. So you know we don't get much there. But I've looked at. Uh, a number of cases where basically what you have to do, right, is you've got tens of thousands of cases, 99% of them are garbage. So you've got to figure out, okay, how do I filter it out? Then once I filter to the very best cases, do I see a pattern of any kind? And so far, over because this began back in World War II uh, up to the modern era, I, I do not see a pattern across that span of time. What I can say is that you can see periodic patterns if you minimize your uh, time scale to let's say a month or a few weeks and a geographic area say of within 100, 200 miles, right? You may see, a, a, a good example is the Levelin cases, 1957 in Texas um you get a bunch of reports of a very similar object in a within a very small time frame within a small geographic area but then you don't see it again next year or the year after you know? I
1: attribute a lot of those to uh classified programs <laughs> yeah, it could be you know. to to look at these things uh, and jump to an extraterrestrial um, explanation like a lot of people do is, is it Is maybe a bridge too far for for a lot of people. Um, But I mean, a lot of people will happily jump there. You know, from my point of view, we have so many cameras on the sky right now of high quality. (laughs) Everyone's got a camera now. Uh, If things are out there, the the evidence is going to be better than a grainy picture from several miles away. And eventually someone is going to have a very clear picture or they're going to have, they're going to end up with, with, pieces of hardware (laughs) that have fallen off of this thing it 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 feels to me like we there there are a lot of there's a lot of things that I can't explain that I know are not magic you know I watch a magic show and I'm easily fooled Um, but I know that these people up on stage are not doing magic there's an explanation for these and maybe I'm too dumb to figure it out and looking at the technology that That we are about to understand, uh, even in the mainstream, I know the military is probably 10 years ahead of what's in in the classified programs, 10, maybe 15, 20 years ahead of what's out there that we know exists. And right now, the optical industry is developing metamaterials which can make things invisible on small scales. And when you start positing that technology on larger scales, which... I expect the military has been working on because obviously why not? <laughs> then you think, okay, well, maybe this is you know some some sort of cloaking mechanism that they've they've developed
0: yeah I, the um, the military does have, I believe cloaking mechanism uh, not using refractive indexes, but where they actually I believe what they do is they take a layer of LEDs right on. On your surface, and then you then you take a camera, so you know what's behind you, and you basically project that to the, your front surface, so that your object uh, basically uh, blends in to the background. Interesting. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Right. I mean, that, and that, that's not a. You can you can imagine how that could be done, so that um, I can see that. Um, the the part that you know, the concern to me is just the, these extreme speeds and accelerations. And our view in, in the SCU is what we want to have happen is for Congress to make this a federal policy, just like you make global warming a federal policy and to provide funds to universities and scientific organizations to go investigate the phenomenon. because. The problems with the military is they're basically concerned with national security. So we'll probably never get the data. And then the other problem is they're, they're not scientists. So they're not necessarily going to calibrate everything in the same way. Um, the guys that are doing those calibrations are not scientists. Uh, so we, I think to get an answer to this issue, it really needs to come into the academic world. And, and out of the military world,
1: I think you're right, and I think to get there, it's open access to data is what's necessary. Because until you have a lot more data, I don't think you're, I don't think anyone's going to be saying yes, we're being visited by extraterrestrials. What's your opinion? Do you think extraterrestrials are visiting us, or are you withholding judgment?
0: Yeah, well, I, I can give my opinion on it, um, and this is based on inductive reasoning, right? Just looking at the gross data that we have available. I'm confident that whatever it is, it it physically exists and that it's intelligently controlled and that it is a significantly higher intelligence than us. Now, whether it's extraterrestrial, you know, by extraterrestrial, I mean from another solar system, or whether it's some other dimension or who knows, there's no way that, right, there's no way any of us can know the source. Mm-hmm. The only thing we can do is we can hypothesize. Now, if you were to ask me, what do you think is the most likely explanation, Robert? Then I would say the most likely explanation of a higher intelligence would be from another exoplanet somewhere out there. Um, that doesn't mean that's the case. It's not something I, I can prove. It's just, uh, of all the hypotheses, that's the one that I would bet on if I had to bet on, but I, I could change my mind tomorrow if there's some data that comes along that says, "Hey, it, this is probably the actual reason." Uh,
1: I, I'd qualify that. I, I wouldn't say you could you could assume it's a higher intelligence. Certainly, you could assume it's a higher or a more advanced technology. I don't know how you would draw the conclusion that it's a higher intelligence. Um, you know, it could be a lower intelligence working for much longer. Yeah. You know, eventually, you know. We have done things that others in the past would would think are magic. And I've, I like the, the the quote, was it uh, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic.
0: Right. Yeah. And, and I, I agree with that. Uh, you know, the other way I've looked at this is just deductive reasoning. Right. OK, so just throw all the UFOs out the window and just look at the scientific data we have today if you look at the extraterrestrial hypothesis, right? So you would start off by saying, number one, we know that there are lots of exoplanets out there and a lot of them are in the habitable zone, Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So then the second question becomes, okay, are any of those capable of high intelligence life? In other words, at our level or beyond. So if you imagined, if you were out at another star system, looking back at the Earth, right? And let's just assume you have 50 to 100 years more advancement than where we are today. Mm -hmm. They would look at our solar system, they would have identified Earth in the habitable zone. With a higher level technology, they would, their spectra of our atmosphere would probably not only show the nitrogen and oxygen, but would probably show uranium, plutonium isotopes. So they'd probably know right off the bat, okay, we've got a nuclear civilization. Um, And then if they were capable of using a coronagraph to block out our sun, they would notice that the dark side of our planet is emitting a particular spectrum of visible light. By then, they should be fairly certain, okay, we've identified a planet with intelligent life. And I think we'll be able to do that within 50 to 100 years. So... Once you've done that, the next question becomes, can you get there, right? That's the, the only question left. Um, and already, and you're probably familiar with this, Al, we've got this breakthrough project where we're, we're, we want to be able to send basically microprobes to Alpha Centauri uh, at roughly 20% the speed of light. Yes. Uh, using solar sails. So we're already looking at interstellar travel. We're nowhere near where we would need to be in order to you know, actually send something reasonable to another star system. But you can imagine a species uh, 100 years more advanced than us might be able to do that. So at that point, it becomes logical to start looking in our solar system and around our planet for any signs that another species has done that. Right, so even, like I said, throw the UFO reports out the window. Uh, it would make sense that we would start looking for any signs of that.
1: Indeed, I mean that's that's part of the the SETI type research that's that's going on is looking for both signals from other intelligences, uh, and there's also a lot of work going on in in astronomy even to look at biosignatures on planets and looking at their atmospheres and detecting uh molecular oxygen for example in the atmospheres and um various uh unstable uh chemistry uh, byproducts of what we consider to be life. Yeah. So definitely that is 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 feasible uh from 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 a range. Um, the question is, what range? Right? And, and if you look at what we could detect out there, it's not very much. Like, intelligent life could be pretty well next door to us at Proxima Centauri. In fact, that's what people are thinking right now, based on a recently discovered radio signal uh, emanating from from that area. Uh, I think those are the Parks radio telescope discovered a, a, a narrow band radio signal that might have come from Proxima Centauri, and they're they're right now investigating to try to to debunk it and and find out what where it really came from right but obviously there's there's we can't detect our our radio emissions uh if it was our planet from very far away from from more than you know 100 uh, a sphere about 10 or 100 light years around our planet and the milky way is huge right it's you know you know, hundred thousand light years across, and we're just sampling just the smallest little corner of it, uh, and we're you know our advanced civilization, the the signals from it obviously have not gone very far, even at the speed of light throughout our galaxy, for anyone to have noticed us yet. So I, th- I think in in that case, you know, a lot of people saying where's the aliens? Why aren't there any aliens? Well, we haven't really looked very far, and we aren't really that visible yet. As a civil as an advanced civilization, the the signals we're sending out have only gone out you know a hundred light years.
0: Yeah, if right that that's correct. So it, and then you have to figure then assuming of course you know that they're limited to the speed of light, which probably a reasonable assumption. Uh, although I guess we could invoke Star Trek and warp drives and <laughs> you know stuff like that. But assuming you know they're limited to the speed of light, that means we would basically. It'd have to be a star system within 50 light years of us to have uh, recognized that we exist based on our missions.
1: Makes you think. Yeah. Anyways, I think we're getting to the end of our our time slot. Uh, And just before we wrap up, uh, I usually ask uh, my guests a question at the end of their interviews. What's your favorite uh, science fiction?
0: My favorite author is probably uh, Orson Scott uh, Cards is probably my favorite
1: yes yes very good very good are you a star trek fan
0: yeah and of course i love star trek you know it's amazing when you look like i don't know why the flip phones ever went away and we had to stay with these things (laughs) because that was star trek (laughs) that was awesome that's true yeah and of course you know we got all sorts of things that that were on that show it's pretty amazing
1: very visionary well thank you very much robert Uh, i appreciate you coming on the rational view
0: yeah, thanks, Al. I hope we—I st- think we stayed pretty rational on this. We didn't have any little gray aliens, so I think we did good.
1: <laughs> awesome. All right, thank you. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my patron page at patron.podbean.com slash The Rational View.